Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. All right, John chapter 9. We're going to look at a great story tonight of a blind man um, <clears throat> who runs into Jesus Christ. Now, let me open up with this thought or question or experience. Have you ever, or you remember when you were younger? And I know for some of us, you have to go back in the annals of our mind if you remember that. But remember when you were younger? Remember peer pressure? You remember feeling peer pressure at all? And you felt the peer pressure of whatever your peer group is, you had to go along with them, or if they said something, you had to go along with them. Even if you didn't think you agreed with it, or you thought they're wrong, completely, or whatever, but you would feel this pressure, no matter what, just to go along with the flow of what it was. Well, in John chapter 9, we have this blind man. And this blind man, he's going to feel a lot of pressure from the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are going to pressure this guy to deny who Jesus is, to deny that he was even ever blind in his life, and they're going to pressure him and pressure him, pressure him. Um, uh, and, but the blind man does a great job of standing up and, and uh, being able to withstand the pressure. So we're going to look at the whole story of all the pressure that's placed upon this guy after he is eye, his eyes are open. And then at the very end, then I'm going to take you through of some simple things that he did throughout chapter 9 when you feel pressure, when you're in a debate and they're pushing hard against you with culture's lies versus the truth of God's word or whatever you may be in, how do you handle yourself? What do you do? And we can look at the blind man and what he did and, and then we could take from his life and this will help us to you know, be able to um, operate within our life. Sound like a plan tonight? Good, okay, here we go. John chapter 9 and verse 1 says this. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, when was the man blind? From what? That's very important. Let me tell you why it's important. Because if the man was once, once had sight, and then, all of a, and then he lost his sight, and then later on Jesus heals him, and he received his sight, they could just say, well, his sight came back. But because the man is blind from birth, when Jesus heals the man, it's going to be a bona fide miracle. It will be undeniable that this man has been healed by a miracle of God. Now, if you have your notes, point one in your notes, and that's this. Our worst trials are when everyone has an opinion on why we are going through it. Have you ever noticed that? That's our worst trials, when everybody has an opinion on why we're going through our trial. Now watch verse 2, because it's an interesting verse. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? Now, doesn't everyone have an opinion on why someone's going through something? It's, a, it's just human nature. The disciples look at the blind man, and the blind man has become an object of their theological debate or discussion. But the blind man really is going to be an object of God's mercy. That's the way Jesus views it. So there's two different ways of looking at it. Now, let me make some statements, and then let me take you on something I think might help you at some point, some questions coming at you at some point in life. Now, in the final analysis of all things, when someone is born with some kind of handicap or whatever it is, physical problem, whatever it is, it's always a result, go way back in time, it's a result of Adam and Eve's sin, correct? Never forget that. We live in a fallen world. So when people try to make all these statements, well, because of this, you, no, no, you, no, you don't really know that. 
It has to go back to the fact that it was Adam and Eve's sin. Now, let me take you on a sidebar I think is very important. And this might help you when it comes to handicaps. People born with handicaps, people in, in defending your faith. Let me, let me try to, to go down that road. Now, we know in the beginning there were how many families? In the beginning of creation. There's just one family. It's not a true question, okay? Let me try it again. How many families in the beginning of creation? One. You guys are smarter already. Look at that. Man, you're learning so fast. Okay, so there's Adam and Eve, and then what does one son do? He kills his brother. Cain kills Abel, right? Okay, but the population continues. Where does Cain get his wife? Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, that's, don't, no, no, don't answer. I don't want to. Okay, where did he get his wife? Let me answer. How many of you are stumped by that question? Just be honest. Okay, yeah, okay, stumped. He's stumped by that question. Who else is stumped by that question? Okay, it was his sister. It was his sister. Now, before you get grossed out, because I remember Viper, I go, what? I go, remember this, and write this down, not in your notes. Genesis 5 and verse 4. It says that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Genesis 5, verse 4. Because if you only read the beginning, you think, well, they didn't have any other kids. Yes, yes, they did. They had many others. And then even when you go and read where Cain is banished to the land of Nod, it said, people say, well, he found his wife there. Who are those people? It doesn't say he found his wife there. It says he had relations with his wife there. So his wife was one of his sisters. Now, you and I, that grosses us out because we live in 2022. Amen? So in the beginning, when sin had barely entered the world, you could, it was very, they were innocent. You, they did marry their sister, their siblings, things like that. Abraham married half-sister, Sarah, correct? But as time goes by and sin's corruption in the fall takes more and more um, uh, toll on the genes of humanity, then you read when they leave Exodus, N Moses gets the law, and when you read the whole law, one of those laws is you could no longer marry your sister, you couldn't do that anymore because you had to marry away from the family. Now, why is that? Some of you are, you know your biology. You know that uh, we have mutant genes, and that's from the fall, right? Now, if you marry someone close to the family, the, this mutant gene could line up with this mutant gene now, and you have a handicap, correct? All you have to do is go back and look at the pharaohs. Has anybody ever studied that? They married within their line, and then you find that there are handicaps in those lines right there. And that's because they married in the family like that. So you and I have to marry further away from the family. And by the way, if you don't marry a relative, you don't marry a human. Any amens on that one? Because we're all related. We all come from Adam and Eve. Every one of us does on the entire planet. Every one of us. And so if you don't marry a relative, you do not marry a human. But now we have to marry further away from the family because that way the hope is that a mutant gene will line up with this person's good gene and the good gene will typically cancel out the mutant gene. Does that make sense? And so that's how you see handicaps happen, but it goes back to the fact that sin and its corruption upon humanity even attacked the genes of humanity. But back then, they married the sister. I mean, who else is he going to marry? Okay, no answers. Good on that one either. Okay, because I thought you might say something, but anyway, okay. 
Now, I want you to notice back in verse 2, because a very interesting statement they make here. They say in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he should be born blind? How many think that's a weird question? Think of what they're asking. This is the disciples, and they're asking, and they're not fully understanding things yet. They're saying, okay, this man was born blind. He was born blind, Jesus, because was it his parents who sinned, or was it because he sinned? Now, think about when they ask, was it because he sinned that he was born blind? That means where would he had to have sinned at? In the womb. Can you imagine? Now, before you go, well, how'd they get that? Because one of the thinkings was in that day that the Pharisees would use over people was that, that you could actually sin in the womb before you were born. So can you imagine what a blind man or anyone born with a handicap felt? There made them think like, it's all my fault my life is this way. And they would keep them under that thumb and they felt their whole life, I'm just being penalized for some dumb move I made in the womb, you know. It makes no sense, but that's the way they had them thinking. And so when the, the disciples asked the question, who sinned, this man or his parents, that should be born blind, that's what they're probably referring to. Now, that also teaches us that the, um, the disciples following Jesus, they had a lot of culture to undo in their minds, correct? And they had a lot of things they had to relearn and get out old stinking thinking that just wasn't true. No different than you and I, correct? The more we read the word, study it, the more we get out the cultural lies out of our mind and we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. Now, point two, that's this. God's power can be displayed on a platform of pain. God's power can be displayed on a platform of pain. Now, look at verse three. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned, because remember the question, so he's going to answer. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what's he saying? He's saying there can be a pain can have a purpose in our lives. Can it not? And it can display the power and the glory of God. Can it not? It can give glory to, the, to God and the kingdom of God. But think of the depth of Jesus' statement because I can't fathom that. But Jesus is saying this because only he could say this because he knows. He says, long before this man was ever born, I already knew, the Godhead already knew that this man's blindness would be used for the purpose to display the glory of God. Can you imagine how deep that is? He's going back in time, way before the man's born, way the man ever existed, way before he could see into the future because he is God. Jesus lives outside the time continuum. He's a creator. He knows the past, present, future all at the same time. And he said, this man's blindness would be used to display the glory of God, that God would use this man's pain. God would use this man's handicap to glorify him. Now, verse 4 and 5, it says, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the what? I'm the light of the world. Now, Jesus is stating that he is now the light of the world. Obviously, he stated it before. And he's going to prove that by opening the man's eyes. Because remember, this is the book of the seven signs. And this is another one coming right here. He's going to prove who he is by that. Now, when he says in verse 4, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, Think of this. He's talking about 
limited time on earth to do certain things. Do you see that? So Jesus, we know back in chapter 8, verse 59, did they want to kill him? Yes, they did. Is this time getting shorter? Yes, it is. So I must work the works of God. It's a great application for our lives. You and I have so much time in this dispensation of our lives to work the works of God while it is still day. Time is limited. Yes, one day we will be into the eternity part of everything, but right now, time is limited for us to do this, what we need to do in our life. Verse 6. When he had said this, now here comes Jesus with one of these crazy moves in his life. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, to the man's eyes. Now, first off, can the man see? Probably a good thing, huh? (laughs) Verse 7, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back what? Seen. Now, there's four different bullet points in your notes, and I want to give you four applications very quick for you to just meditate on later if you so choose. The first one is this. Jesus used different methods to heal. He uses different methods to heal. Now, why do you think he would use different methods to heal? What's the one reason why he would do that? Let me rephrase it. What if he only used one method to heal? Then what? Then we would always, we would tend to make that method, we would tend to worship that method. Would we not? We would worship the method rather than the Messiah. Jesus does it different ways so that we don't get stuck in little boxes or programs. You follow that so far? One of the things you learn in ministry, and you learn it the hard way, you'll always learn it the hard way, is what worked last year or five years ago doesn't work today. Have you ever noticed that in real life? But we tend to want to go repeat things that once worked. Do we not? You can't do it. And in ministry, you learn it the hard way. When people want we should do that again. No, we really shouldn't do that again. It's just not going to work again. It was great when we did it, but it's not going to work again. And so the Holy Spirit is always coming up with new stuff. So you don't want to worship the method. You worship the Messiah. Amen? The second thing I want to say about that is, um, is this is archaeologically accurate. It's accurate. Is there a pool of Siloam? You better believe there is. It mentions a pool of Siloam. In Israel, is there a pool of Siloam? There is. You'd walk through Hezekiah, or if you choose to go that way, but you walk through Hezekiah's tunnel, 1,777 feet. I told you about that tunnel, carved through solid rock by King Hezekiah to bring water into the city of Jerusalem because a city to be defended had to have a water source that the enemy did not know where it was. That, that tunnel that brings water in it empties out in the pool of Siloam. It is there. It's an archaeological fact. One of the cool things in our lifetime in the last 100 years is they keep uncovering these archaeological sites, proving locations, proving the existence of people in cities. It's one of the greatest things. They, they say, it, you know, secularists will say, uh, not true, didn't exist, not there. And then all of a sudden, archaeology uncovers it. And sure enough, they did exist. And sure enough, that place did exist. So I like stuff like that right there. And by the way, side note, the pool silo means sent. And previously, Jesus just stated, the father sent him, and now he sends the man 
to the pool, which is called scent. Isn't that funny? Scent, scent, scent. Right there. So, I'm not funny, but it's interesting to me. The third bullet point is this. Jesus will use the substance of creation to create sight in the man's eyes. He will use the substance of creation. He pulls dirt, clay off the ground, and spits in it to create whatever needs to be created in the man's eyes. What does that remind you of? Adam and Eve, that's right. Picks up the dirt of the ground, and he forms Adam, and he breathes into him life. He applies something, takes from the ground, applies something for himself, and here he takes clay from the ground, applies something for himself, and now he begins to recreate. Isn't that interesting right there? How you see the Messiah doing this, the creator of all things? I like stuff like that. Now, the fourth thing, which is my, my favorite of these four, I've always liked this. Irritation leads to irrigation, which results in illumination. Irritation leads to irrigation, which results in illumination. Now think about that. When Jesus puts the clay in the man's eyes, you think it felt good? There's no way. What's the first thing you think he wants to do? I got to wash this stuff out of my eyes. He didn't even know where the place to go is. I got to wash it out of my eyes. So they go, he says, take him, take him and wash. So they take him by the hand to go wash, and he gets there, he washes. He's irritated, he washes, and once he finishes washing, what can he now what? He can see. So illumination. Have you ever noticed, and have you ever noticed in your life, when you go through trials, times of irritation, and you dig deeper in the word, and you get deeper in worship, and you're washing with the water of the word, trying to figure out, God, what's going on in my life, and it eventually leads to illumination, and then you understand. Have you ever noticed that? It just takes you deeper in your relationship because you washed with the water of the word of God. So it, this irritation led to irrigation, which leads to illumination, and you see greater th- than you ever saw before in the kingdom of God. Amen? Now, let me give you a cool, can I give you a cool little tidbit? Only one of you wants it? That's it? Okay. No, I'm just joking. Okay. If you think about it, this blind man is the first man to ever walk by faith and not by sight. Right? Can he find his way to the pool of Silo? He has to walk by faith. They're leading. He's walking by faith. He's not walking by sight. Jesus said, just go wash. So he's walking by faith. He can't see. He walks by faith, not by sight. First guy to probably ever really, literally do that right there. Now, let's move on. Point three in your notes, and that's this. It's great when people don't recognize the new you in Christ, isn't it? Isn't it great when they don't recognize the new creation that you are? I like stuff like that. Verse 8 and 9 says this. Therefore, now, now, the guy can see now, right? He'd been blind how long? All his life. All his life. Therefore, the neighbors, you know, those neighbors, they're always talking, huh? No, I'm just joking. Anybody have a neighbor that's always telling you, you know, with a scuttlebutt in the whole neighborhood? Huh? Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar, previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, is not this the one who used to sit and beg? They're going, wait a minute. That's the guy who used to sit and beg. Verse 9. Others uh, were saying, um, this is he Still others were saying, "Mm, no, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I am the one, okay? Now, the neighbors who have seen him all his life begging, now they're looking at him like, wait a minute, you're not, are are you, are you, 
Are you the one you sit and beg? They're not recognizing him, are they? They're not sure about it, of what he was versus what he is. There's a big difference there. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, when he goes through all these sinful behavioral lifestyles, he says to the Corinthians, and such were some of you, but now you were washed. It's great when your life is so dramatically uh, transitioned, transformed, that people don't really recognize them. They're shocked. Are you really this person now? But now it's for the glory of God. Is it not? Now, what's the natural question now this guy can see and everybody knows, I, you know, yeah, yeah it's got to be the guy. So the natural question, let's see in verse 10, is this. So they were saying to him, how? How then were your eyes open? That's the natural question, right? You were blind, but now you see. How in the world do you now see? How, how were your eyes open? In other words, what changed you? Four times in this chapter, 10, 15, 19, 26, verse, in those verses, they're going to ask how. People are going to ask him how he got this back. So the transformation of a life will always provoke the question, how did your life change? And when they ask you, what happened? How come you're different? That's when you share your testimony. You share your testimony. Well, this is how it happened. And that brings it back to the glory of God, right? Because this man was born blind for the glory of God. And so we go through life, certain things, it will eventually be used for the glory of God. Because there's the transition moment of your life. Verse 11. He answered, and here's, his, here's the answer. The man who is, here's the, here's the blind man who can now see, here's his answer. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received my sight. Verse 12. They said to him, where is he? He said, uh, I, do, I don't know. He doesn't even know who Jesus is. He knows nothing about him. He, I, I don't know. I know his name's Jesus. But that's all I know. Now, at this moment in time, the people are kind of shocked. There's kind of probably a lot going on. People are like, what's, what's happening here? And now we insert, here come the joy killers, right? All churches have a few joy killers, do they not? There's always a few joy killers because they don't want you to have fun. No, we got to criticize something. We got to find something wrong. We got to just find it, okay? Here come the joy killers. Here they come, verse 13. And this is where it starts amping up now. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a what? Oh, no. You ever feel like Jesus just does it on purpose? I just think he does, man. It's like, well, I, what can I do on the Sabbath today to get these guys upset with me, man? Now, it was a Sabbath on that day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again, how, there it is, how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see, irrigation, irritation, irrigation, illumination. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, here's their comeback, here's what the Pharisees say. Listen to the rationale. This man is not from God. Because he does not, what? He doesn't keep the Sabbath. That's their big deal right there, right? That's where they're, they're going to plant themselves. 
But others were saying, well, here's logic, right? Well, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Question, does Jesus cause division among people? You better believe he does. So they said to the blind man again, they're going to get into, what do you say about him? Meaning, what do you say about Jesus since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. That's going to irritate him right there, okay? Because prophets in the Old Testament perform miracles. And now you're really irritating the ex-blind man right here. Verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind. So they don't even believe he was ever blind. Though everybody there can testify the guy was blind all his life. Oh, we don't even believe you're blind. Um, and, and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. So now, here's the problem. The man's healed and he can see. But the Pharisees have a problem with what Jesus did on the Sabbath and how he healed the man. What did Jesus do to heal the man? On the, what aren't you supposed to do on the Sabbath? Work. What, what do they consider what Jesus did? That's work. Because they have their own man-made rules and interpretations of the Sabbath. It's their own man-made rules. It's not biblical. You are to rest on the Sabbath, but it doesn't mean you're a prisoner to just lay there and do nothing. That's not what it was meant, because they became prisoners to the Sabbath because of the Pharisees. So they have, a, they have a problem with that. And what they're really saying is, this Jesus, we're getting up to here with him because he doesn't do church the way we do it. You ever feel that way? That's not the way to do church. Really? Where does it say that? You know, we, we put the Holy Spirit in such boxes in our life. Now, they're going to get, they think this guy's a liar. So let's get the liar's parents to prove that he was never blind. Now think about that. We would rather believe he was never blind than to glorify God. So let's get the parents to prove the liar is a liar. And let's get them in here to discredit this liar right now. Right? So, okay. So they asked the, the question <clears throat> of the parents. If the parents don't say anything, are they in trouble? If the parents say the wrong thing, are they in trouble? You better believe it because if they don't say what the Pharisees want them to hear, they will be excommunicated. Today we call that canceled, right? They'll be excommunicated. They will be thrown out because you aren't seeing it the way we see it and you are giving misinformation. Fun word today, right? You're giving misinformation and therefore you are not going to say in this temple. So you're going to get out. So the pressure's on the parents now. What are the parents going to do? Well, let's check it out. Watch what they do. Verse 19. And question them, saying, here they're, they're going to ask the parents, is this your son? Can you imagine the parents? Yeah. <laughs> who you say, now see how who you say was born blind. Not like is this your son who was born blind? No, who you say was. Then how? There it is. How? I want to know how again. How? It's the third time. How does he now see? Verse 20. His parents answered and said, uh, we know that this is our son. You know, the one thing we know, he looks like him. It's him, okay? We know this. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He is of age. That means what? 
Is the guy a grown man? How long has he been blind? A long time. Now we find out he's a grown man. Oh my gosh. He will speak for himself. Verse 22. His parents said this because they were what? Afraid. And the Old Testament, Solomon says, the fear of man brings a snare. Does it not? Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man brings a snare. And the word snare means a noose. It chokes you, chokes you. It kills you. That's why we can be empowered by the Spirit of God to be bold as lions and to be firm in what we believe and not bend to these things. Any amens on that one right there? Yeah, so we're not choked out in our life from sharing what needs to be shared. Now, where, verse, where, where am I? Oh, verse 20, 20, 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed, so everybody knows this, what they're going to say now, that if anyone confessed him, Jesus, to be the Christ, the anointed one, Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Hold on. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. In other words, don't ask me, man. Because if I tell you the truth, you're going to throw us out of the synagogue. Now, quick side note, synagogue, Pharisees strong in the synagogue, Sadducees strong in the temple. Pharisees out in the countryside, more of the poor types, not poor, poor though. Sadducees, more of the rich types in the temple. So you'll be tossed out of the synagogue. I think you needed 10 men to come together to form a synagogue. And there's still remnants of synagogues back in, especially the one in Capernaum um, to this day. Now, so the first answer is this. Yeah, he looks like our son. Yeah, we think it's him. Yeah. Uh -huh. The second answer they gave is kind of evasive, right? Well, uh, you know, ask him. He's old enough. They, they're afraid. They're afraid of being excommunicated from the temple. You and I, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but to them, it was everything, wasn't it? To be excommunicated from the temple of God? And they're, they're scared, so go ask him. So they say, well, let's go back and interrogate this guy then. Let's go back and ask him some questions, because obviously somebody's lying here. Now, that's point four now. Here we go. We do not have to be theologians to share our faith. Any amens on that one? You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to know everything. You can watch what this guy does. Verse 24 and 25. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Stop right there. When they say give glory to God, you can go back to when Joshua confronts Achan, when Achan stole the stuff in the Old Testament, hid it under the, in the ground, and he tells Achan, when he finally narrows it down to his family and to him, he says, give the glory to God. That is the basic idea of tell the truth. Tell the truth. And so when they say to the man, give the glory to God, they say, tell the truth now, because we know you're lying. Verse 25. He answered. He then answered. Whether he's a sinner, because remember, they just called Jesus a sinner. Yikes. Whether he's a sinner, I, I, I do not know. One thing, say one thing. One thing I do know. How many things does he know? One thing, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I Ah. The only thing I know, I can't debate you theologically. I can't give you all the verses. I can't give you all that stuff. But the one thing I know is I was actually blind. 
and now I see. That's the man's testimony, isn't it? That carries more weight than most things, doesn't it? That your life has been transformed. Look how limited this man's knowledge is. He knows nothing of you. He knows the guy's name is Jesus, and that's all he knows. He knows nothing else. But he says, once I was blind, and now I see. And nobody can prove that wrong, because I'm the evidence of that. See, your life, when it transforms, your life is the evidence of a living, living God. I'm sitting last Friday, in, uh, where I, I go to study on Tuesday, but Friday I go there too, and there's this older gentleman that always comes and sits across from me. We've developed a relationship for the last two years. He's actually older than me. That's when I say older. And we dialogue, and I always pick my spots to try to get in there, share with him, and I don't want to scare him off, you know. It's taken me a while just to get in this far. And so I was talking last week, and it came up. And I go, okay, here's one of my little spots right here. And I shared with him, I said, I said, John, I said, the night I gave my life to Christ, I said, in a moment, everything changed. Everything changed. When I came up from that prayer, I, everything was different. I, I didn't want to do this or this or this anymore, and I wanted to live this way. I go, John, tell me, what could have changed me in a moment? Nothing except the Holy Spirit's power coming to live in me. Nothing could have done that. And you could tell he was really listening now. I go, nothing could have done that, John. It was just the Spirit of God. So I, and then I said this, I can give you the theological, cosmological arguments for the existence of God. I can give you the historical arguments that Jesus did exist. I can take you all those roads. But you know what? Bottom line is, nothing but the Spirit of God could have changed me in a moment. And when I said Jesus came into my life, came in and my life was changed forever. And never forget that. Never forget that's your greatest, greatest argument when you share your faith. Then tell them, then what changed me? Tell me what changed me. Because they can't give you the answer to that one. But you have the answer. And that's what the man is saying. Now, in verse 24, they tell the man, Jesus is a sinner. In other words... They're pressuring the man to agree with their conclusion. Are they not? But what does the man do? He sticks to the evidence, does he not? He sticks to the evidence and he sticks to the facts. He's staying right with it. Now, watch this, verse uh, 26. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How? How many hows now? This is the what, what how now? It's the fourth. It's the fourth. It's the fourth. It's the last how, I think. How did he open your eyes? They revert back to the same. How? Verse 27. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Now, what did he tell them already before of how? He made clay, put it in my eyes, spit in it. That's how he did it, remember? And that's what irks them because Jesus did work on the Sabbath, remember? So this is how. I told you already. And you do not listen. Why do you why? Why do you want to hear it again? Here's the funny line. You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? Uh, that had to have taken guts, right? I mean, they he knows they hate Jesus. And yet, do you guys want to be his disciples too? Oh man, can you imagine their teeth? Oh, just grinding away. Verse 28. Now watch, he's this blind man's coming in for the logical kill shot now. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple. 
but we are disciples of Moses. Sure you are, guys. Verse 20, we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Oh, they shouldn't have said that, because now the blind man has a question or a statement. He says, verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes? In other words, you're the spiritual leaders of Israel? Guy opens my eyes, and you have no clue where he's from or what this guy's about? See, I mean, he just, he's coming back with such great logic, man. It's, it's brilliant. Now watch verse 31. The man says this. The man's not done with these Pharisees now because they've, they've provoked him. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Hmm. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Brilliant. It's brilliant. Because remember, he was born blind, and his life has changed. Just brilliant. He knew nothing about Jesus except his name's Jesus. And now he's debating with the Pharisees, using his testimony as a defense against the Pharisees. Now, here's my big question with these verses that we just read. What is the man, the ex-blind man, now moving closer to? God, faith in Jesus. You're listening to the man move closer and closer to faith in Jesus. Ah, and what is he using as he moves closer to faith in Jesus? He's using logic and evidence. Logic and evidence. Never, ever, 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 ever think that your faith is a blind faith. It isn't. Your faith is an evidence-based faith, and it's make and your faith makes sense. It's just logical. So never think it, don't, don't ever tell me, oh, you just gotta believe. No, we have an evidence-based faith. Now watch their response. Verse 34. They answered him. And they're really great at not knowing what to do and just putting people down, right? You were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? Now stop right there. You were born entirely in sins. Remember why he thought he was born blind? Because he probably sinned in the what? You were born entirely in your sins. See them reinforcing it? See them putting him down again? See them trying to take him back to some old lie that was believed? Hmm. They said, you were born entirely in sin, and you are teaching us. So they put him out. Look, they have no answer. They have no answer to this man's testimony. So they resort to what people resort to, especially these types of in position of power, the ones who think they're the elitists, who think they're smarter than the common people. Any amens on that? <clears throat> You're teaching us? We're the teachers of Israel. We're the educated ones. We know better than you. You know, who do you think you are? You're some, some dumb ex guy who said he was blind. And so they throw him out. When it says they put him out, it means they excommunicate him. They dump him out of the temple. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, meaning excommunicated. This plays big in the next chapter when we talk about the good shepherd. Plays big. They put him out. And finding him, here's what Jesus says to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Whoa. 
Not just do you believe in God, do you believe in the Son of Man? We won't turn there, but in your notes you have it there, Daniel 7, 13, 14. That's the mess- it's a messianic, prophetic, couple of verses, Daniel writes, pointing to God, the Messiah, who's titled the Son of Man. So when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's not saying, just believe in me as a good moral teacher, a good guy. No, he's saying, you got to believe that I'm God in the flesh, I am the Messiah. Do you believe that? And that's what people have to come to, that Jesus is God in the flesh, the Messiah. Verse 36, watch this. I'm going to drive it home now. He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He doesn't even know who Jesus is. Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who's talking with you. In other words, it's me, guy. It's me. Verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Question, once we become believers, shouldn't that translate into wanting to worship God? Shouldn't it translate into wanting to come together and just sing to God and worship God, doesn't it? Shouldn't it translate into wanting to live for the glory of God and live our lives, you know, as transformed people, living sacrifices for the glory and the worship of God? It should translate into that. If it doesn't, I think we need to go back and get born again again, just to make sure, okay? Because something's not right there if it doesn't translate. Verse 39, and don't hit me and say, born again, again. That's not spirit. I, I got it. It's just a joke, okay? And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Oh, no. The Pharisees are going to ask a stupid question. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? What do you think they expect Jesus to say? Oh, no, not you guys. You guys are cool, man. Watch what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. I have another verse there. You can look at it later. In other words, knowledge equals responsibility, does it not? Jesus' half-brother James says in the, in the little New, New Testament letter of James, he says, if a man knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it to him, it is sin because he knows. Knowledge equals responsibility. He says, because you say you see, because you say you have understanding, because you say your sin remains. Your sin remains. Now, let me finish off this way. Let me go back to the opening intro comments about pressure. Okay, In your notes. How did the man handle the intimidation of the Pharisees? There's four things I have for you there, then we'll, then we'll head home. The first thing is, he stuck to the facts. If you look at verses 15, 25, and 32, you don't have to do that now, later on. He stuck to the facts. How many of us, when we get in dialogues, debates, it goes way off the rails, right? Stay right here. Stick to the facts. Secondly, he gave quick answers. They're very quick answers. In fact, the one in verse 17, he says, when they say, what do you say about him? He says, he's a prophet. It was just that quick. He's a prophet. That was it. He gave a quick answer. See, when you give less words and just right to the point, you give people less ammunition, correct? Just stick to, the, stick to it. Stick to the end. Stick. Quick answers. The fourth thing you find in the man is he didn't argue. You never find him arguing the position with these guys. No, he just stating the facts to the point. He's just stating what happened. And the fourth thing you find in the man is he remained bold. He stayed bold in everything he was doing. So 
Stick to the facts, quick answers, don't argue, and remain bold. And that's how the man handled the intimidation of the Pharisees. And guess what? It worked. It worked. And it works for us too, if we use it. Amen. We'll stop there, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, recorded historical event, God, with you and this blind man. Lord, we, can learn, we learn so much from it. But one of the great things is that we, can, we don't have to know everything. Our testimony carries weight. And we can share the few things that we do know. And our transformed life is the evidence, is the evidence of the Spirit of God changing us and recreating us. Thank you, Jesus, for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCC Norco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.